All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your mysterious second brain speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back with another bonus episode, another one of these episodes commissioned by one of our very generous Patreon supporters. And today we're going to be talking about the Golden Age science fiction novel, The World of Null A by A.E. Van Vogt. This was originally published in serial form in the magazine Astounding in 1945, and then it was revised for publication as a novel in 1948. It was also revised again in 1970, though... I'm going to be real clear here up front and say, I'm not sure if uh, uh, we read the 1970 revision or if we read the 1948 version. It does not say anything about that, actually, in the the physical book that we read. Uh, And I I say we because I am joined here today on this episode by Brandon Buddha, because this book is at least in some way about Aristotelianism, and he's the one with the philosophy background. And for those of you who don't know, Brandon is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. So welcome back to ATOS, Brandon. Well, it's good to be back. We've been making this kind of a, a regular date here <laughs> between us, uh, me showing up on ATOS. Yeah, you're right to say that this book is at least in some way about Aristotelianism. Null A stands for non-Aristotelianism. We'll get into all of that stuff, or at least as best as I'm able to. Uh, and I'm going to try to keep us out of the weeds in terms of going deep into philosophy. But Van Vogt has something very specific in mind when he's talking about Null A or non-Aristotelianism. I'm pretty excited to talk about this book. Uh, boy, does it show that this was originally a serialized novel. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get into craft. But yeah, this this was a, a fun book to read. Certainly kept the pages turning on, on many nights. Well, before we get into it, I too want to thank our Patreon supporter for commissioning this novel. This was a, a real fun book to read, and I'm excited to to talk about it with you, Glenn. So we should just get into it. Yeah, really, truly, thank you so much for the commission. Commissions are such a huge part of how we keep the network going. And also, it's a huge part of how we get to read things that we we might not otherwise read or read things that are totally new to us. We'll talk about that in just a a minute. Uh, Let me break down the episode plan, though. Uh, So first thing we're going to do is talk about the the setting, the, the characters and the plot of the story. We're then going to take up the big themes and motifs of the the book, and that's really where uh, the episode is going to turn into Brandon explaining the book to me, essentially, which I'm really looking forward to. And then we'll finish up by by talking about writing craft and the the strengths and weaknesses that we found in this book. And we're going to do the end of that a little bit differently than I normally do on uh, on ATOS for some specific reasons that we'll we'll get to when we get to. But I want to start us off just by saying up front that Van Vogt is a fairly polarizing figure in science fiction history. And so I was really excited to have a chance to read this book, uh, to also to talk about it, to do this episode, but also to talk about the, the criticisms of Van Vogt's work by other science fiction writers. This is also going to be my first Van Vogt novel. Uh, but Brandon, uh, is, is that true for you as well? Or w- what's your history with Van Vogt? No history. I hadn't even heard of him before reading this novel. And, you know, so I did a bunch of Wikipedia research on him, if that can even be called research, uh, and discovered, you know, he's uh, really got into science fiction after reading uh, The Thing from Another Planet and kind of wrote a 
I don't know, uh, his own version of that, which didn't get published. But then, you know, the publisher was like, hey, this is you're a pretty good writer. Send us something else. And that kind of kicked off his uh, his his career as a writer. And he didn't write a lot. It seems as though he got sidetracked at some point by uh, di- getting into Dianetics with L. Ron Hubbard. So he's a really interesting figure, both in science fiction and the way some science fiction writers have decided to create a religion. I will say Van Vogt, uh, based on what I read, wasn't into Scientology and Thetans and all the off-planet, otherworldly stuff. But but Dianetics seemed to be something that was uh, a part of what he was thinking about. And, and there's some elements of that kind of question asking, I suppose, in this novel, though, I think it came from a very different place than it did with L. Ron Hubbard. But all of that's to say that I have no history with Van Vogt, and this novel was a real surprise to me. Yeah, he took really almost a full decade off from writing to to run a Dianetics Center in L.A. And we are going to see quite a bit of that in this book, right? If we're thinking about Dianetics, you know, separate from Scientology, which it, it, it becomes later, but thinking of Dianetics as essentially a kind of... Uh, quest for self-perfection or self-improvement, that is going to be a major theme, a major motif of this of this story. But yeah, as I said, I've never read a Van Vogt novel before, but I have read Van Vogt stories. And this is actually pretty true generally of my experience with Golden Age science fiction. Uh, I've read a lot of novels by Heinlein. Of course, you and I have done Starship Troopers together recently. And I've read a lot of novels by Arthur C. Clarke as well. But my experience with Asimov and Van Vogt and many, many of the other Golden Age science fiction writers has always been through their short stories, which of course is how they all got their career started anyway, including Arthur C. Clarke, who has a great collection of short stories as well. And usually I wound up reading these just in anthologies that I would get either at the the library or even more likely at our local used bookstore where I could get some mass market collection of like something like Hugo nominated short stories or just you know short stories about space exploration they usually have cooler titles than that but, you know but that's you know basically what those were and I could get those for like 75 cents because they were going to fall apart while I was reading them like they all had one read left in them <laughs> and uh, I thought that was always a great way to spend my allowance or my uh, my, my pizza making money and so I have read a handful of Van Vogt short stories before, but something I encountered in, in reading about him in preparation for this episode as well is that uh, he made a pretty good deal amount of money by uh, by suing the uh, the motion picture studio that made Alien by pointing out that uh, the whole thing's totally ripped off from two short stories he wrote. It's actually probably stories that I've read in one of these collections, but did not recognize at the time as being the a thing from which the film Alien was adapted. But I would be really excited for us to do those over on Elder Sign. That would be really cool. I'd love to do that as well. I know space horror, like I said, his influence was the thing that got him into you know, science fiction as a genre was, uh, it's, it's really a novella called Who Goes There? The Thing from Another World is the, the original movie, and then John Carpenter made The Thing. But that's by John W. Campbell. So, you know, he, he really got in uh, right at the start of kind of the science fiction magazine boom and was influenced by one of the most, you know, influential sort of pseudo space horror stories and kind of went on from there. 
Yeah, and that novella by John W. Campbell as well. That is something that I've been keeping in the back pocket for us to do on Elder Sign. Uh, keeping in the back pocket largely just because it, it's something we would spend four or five episodes doing, which means we would do it at the expense of doing other stories. So have not done it yet, but it's a real classic and I would love to do that. Yeah, all, all sorts of things always that we want to do on our shows. So I always encourage listeners to uh, take advantage of our uh, uh, commissions and, and nomination scheme to help us make those things happen. But let's get into talking about the book more specifically. And and yeah, let's let's start as we usually do when we do these these team up episodes with uh, reading the description on the back. I think in this case, Brandon, you know, you and I both have the same edition here. I'm going to have you read this, but uh, let's just read that second paragraph because interestingly, the first paragraph and longer paragraph here is not about the book at all. It's just about how awesome Van Vogt is. And you should read this book really just because he was important. But what's the description on the back of the book here? Yeah, I will say before I read the description, the name that jumps out to me on on the first paragraph is Philip K. Dick. And it turns out Philip K. Dick was a really big Van Vogt fan. So that, you know, that's a selling point, I guess. But here's the, the blurb, the description of the novel. It is the year 2650 and Earth has become a world of non Aristotelianism or null A. This is the story of Gilbert Gossain who lives in that future world where the games machine made up of 25,000 electronic brains sets the course of people's lives. Gossain isn't even sure of his own identity, but realizes he has some remarkable abilities and sets out to use them to discover who has made him a pawn in an interstellar plot. Yeah, there's a, a lot going on here. I'll talk about the setting in a second, but I think first we should talk about this name, which is a totally made up name, right? We've never encountered this name before, but I suspect that this name is actually supposed to be pronounced not Gossin, though I think, you know, we just want to say Gilbert Gottfried, like this is you see Gilbert and you've got a geo <laughs> after it. That's what we want to say. But I suspect this is supposed to sound like Gosain, as in go sane. Um, I think it's a name that has to have some meaning. We can talk about that later, but that's how I'm going to choose to pronounce it that way. Maybe you should keep pronouncing it the other way, Brandon. So we have our, uh, our bases covered. <laughs> at least, we'll at least be I, half right. I think, I think you're absolutely right that that is the, the intention there. Uh, sanity is a big part of what this novel is about and influence the ideas that, that Van Vogt uh, is working with in, in the development of this novel as well. So I didn't even catch that. That's like, when you read Harry Potter and Hogwarts just sounds like a perfectly reasonable name for a castle. But then you're like, actually, <laughs> this is a book for children and Hog Hogwarts is meant to be funny, you know? So it's weird how things accrue cultural weight in different ways. Yeah, I'm really, I'm going to be really excited when you finally discover about uh, Di- Diagon Alley and uh, Nocturne Alley. But I won't <laughs> what, ruin what do that you mean? for you. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk about the setting of this book a little bit here. We get quite a bit of that thrown at us in this blurb, but yeah, it's Earth. It's 2650, so you know that's way in the future, right? That's uh, 700 years in the future from the the writing of this story. And in this time, there, there's a, a single world government on Earth. There's uh, peace and stability. There's also scientific flourishing. Human civilization as well has expanded into the the solar system and particularly Venus, where some of the story is going to take place. And uh, we'll talk more about this uh, later, but Venus is just like a perfectly normal, like inhabitable place. You don't have to do any terraforming for that. We'll talk about that at more length later, but that's a big feature of the story here as well. And then of course, right, we've got this 
world of non-Aristotelianism or, or null A, this philosophy that has come to dominate this human civilization and seems to be at least in part responsible for the peace and the stability and the scientific flourishing. Though there is another element going on here, which is uh, what's mentioned here in the blurb as the games machine, this computer that controls human society. Uh, guides might actually be a better word. We're going to talk more about that later. But uh, that more or less is kind of the the, the setting of the, the story, at least as it's introduced to us when the story gets going. We're going to see that uh, as the last line of this suggests that there is an interstellar stage upon which all of this is happening that we'll learn a little bit about as well. All the blurbs and descriptions that are on the back of the novel and the front of it really, I think, only serve to confuse the reader as they're getting into this book. It's, I probably would have had an easier time navigating this novel if I had not read the back, because it seems to me, Glenn, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like we'll be correcting each other a lot during this episode. But <laughs> uh, Earth is not the non-Aristotelian world. Venus is. And so part of what the game's machine is for is to weed out the people who have mastered the philosophy of Null A so that they can live on Venus, which is a perfect Null A world. Another blurb here that can set your expectations for the novel is that this is the classic novel of non-Aristotelian logic and the coming race of supermen. Uh, that is also, if you've studied Aristotle's role in the development of logic, is, is really misleading because uh, Gossin pretty much uses things like modus ponens and modus tollens, like the classic forms of conditional statements that set the groundwork for logic. Uh, so Van Vogt has something very different in mind than is advertised on the book. And so the setting, uh, if you really read the blurb and you've just listened to what Glenn said, um, can, can set expectations that make the novel more difficult to parse than kind of a clarifying statement, which could be wrong, but which is how I read the book, which is that the people who haven't mastered non-Aristotelianism live on Earth, and they all compete to go to Venus, uh, where, as we'll see later, a kind of battle of Endor scene takes place because people have perfectly mastered non-Aristotelianism. Love the Return of the Jedi reference there. That's exactly <laughs> what this is like, but I had not realized it. But no, you're, you're totally right that not everyone on Earth is, pract is practicing null A philosophy, which is more than just a philosophy. There seems to be actually some something physiological that you have to to do with your brain by sort of willing it or maybe it's not maybe it's not quite neurological maybe it's cognitive but there's a a real challenge in order to turn yourself into a practitioner of null a and not everyone can do it or not everyone can do it well enough to really uh, usher in the utopia and so the utopia here is venus where you have to have gotten to like a certain level of null anus in order to get to and the games machine is what decides if you've made it or not but people who have made it to that level and have gone to venus and lived in the utopia there come back to earth as well and are the people who are meant to be running the society society on Earth in conjunction and coordination with the games machine computer as well, with the idea that everyone who is on Earth is trying to get 
into null A, to try to become uh, perfect. They're striving for this type of uh, of excellence or or flourishing, right? Words that Aristotle might actually have used, although though maybe those other words we shouldn't be using if we're supposed to be non-Aristotelian here. But right, it's it's not the utopia; it's a utopia in progress. But then we get that contrasted with Venus, where there is this utopia already. Those are things I'm going to talk about more in the the themes and motifs segment for sure. But we should get into the plot a little bit here. But before we do that, let's let's just talk about the protagonist. What else do we need to know about uh, uh, Gilbert Gosain here, Brandon? When we do meet him as the story opens, he's recently widowed. Uh, his wife, Patricia Hardy, died not too long ago, and he's in town to play some sort of game where he will be able to demonstrate his worth in the Nolle world and win a trip to Venus and live there with the other Nolle folks. So his motivations are super clear. He's trained for the Nolle games, and he wants to win them in order really to honor his wife and their dreams. And this setup here in the early going of the book might make you think that this is going to be a novel about the games and what they're like and how you demonstrate non-Aristotelianism and the non-Aristotelian way of being. Um, But pretty soon, he's found out to be a fraud. And he doesn't even know he's a fraud, but someone else does. And that's proven by some kind of lie machine So he's got to now figure out what's going on. So the focus is whipped away from us on this idea of the games and really exploring non-Aristotelianism into a a kind of a thriller plot. So a few more things about Gilbert Gosain here. He's super into proving the virtues of the non-Aristotelian way of being. And this means, at least in part, that he is working on fully integrating his extra animal brain into his normal brain. Uh, Eventually, he's going to learn how to teleport by using his brain as a near-perfect map of the territory, so to speak. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. And learning to connect to things through their basic similarities rather than their dissimilarities. So his like reasoning is looking at how things are similar instead of how they're different. Uh, Categorical reasoning is different for Gilbert Gosain. He also learns to kill people with electricity. So I guess that's pretty cool if you're into that sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, But all of this happens while he finds himself embroiled in a plot that reaches to the heights of our own government, as well as a galactic power that is introduced, I don't know, three thirds of the way into the book or something like that. Uh, Not to mention a mysterious figure who is using him as a pawn in their own quest for immortality. So, you know, he's got a bunch to do and everything happens more or less randomly in such a way that he has to adjust rapidly to new situations without being able to rest on either his own emotional biases uh, that might otherwise inform his beliefs about what's happening or uh, the history that he has with himself and the world and causality. That's all intentional. It doesn't feel intentional when you're reading it if you don't have like the full background of what Van Vogt is working with. Uh, But I am going to say that the thing that this novel has going for it is that Van Vogt is intentionally writing the story in this way in order to demonstrate something, uh, which I will try to explain a little bit later on. 
Yeah, you're going to do a lot of explaining on this uh, on this episode, because as you said, <laughs> first and foremost, this book is a political thriller with some sci-fi elements. And, and you're going to be talking about <laughs> that, about the genre of thrillers and how this how this works, how it plays with those tropes in our, our writing craft segment. But yeah, at the beginning of this book, right, the inciting incident really that happens in chapter one is that Gosen is not actually who he thinks he is on page one. It turns out that his identity has been erased and and replaced. And now that he's aware of that, the question is why? And this is a pretty crazy book. I mean, I think thrillers in general are pretty crazy because you have to have basically every chapter has to end as like a cliffhanger or a game changer. But this book has a game changer at the as the break at the end of chapter one, which is just a totally unconventional way to tell a story. But it it hooked me really well. I actually thought it was fantastic, though I think that that's got to be an artifact from the serialization of this that probably would not fly if you just sent this to an editor today, but that I thought was really, very cool. But this quest for figuring out, one, who he actually is, and then also why he's had his identity stolen from him is going to drive the plot. And and this ends up being wrapped up in the family of the president of all humanity as well. The the president's daughter is in disguise and hanging out with them. It's it's not clear why she's doing that, even when Gosain figures out who she really is. And of course, it also turns out that, yeah, she's the person that he thought he was married to, uh, though she wasn't, you know, the president's daughter in that weird uh, unreality that uh, he had existing in his mind until that was ruptured for him. But yeah, as you suggest, Brandon, at the start, even even after his identity is revealed or, or you know, lack of, of identity, the, the fraud of his identity as we see it in chapter one is, is exposed, it still feels like this is basically going to be the Hunger Games or something like that. And, and in this urban setting where actually there's real danger because there's a suspension of the law during these games. And apparently there are, you know, gangs of people who will do violence for you or to you and try to mug you and that sort of thing. And it seems like still that's what this story is going to be. But it's not. Uh, but to understand what is really happening, and, and so we can actually <laughs> discuss the book, we need to zoom out and set the stage with information that we don't get until fairly late in the story, as you said, Brandon. And it is simply that we are not alone. There are many intelligent species in our galaxy, uh, intelligent species with space travel and huge interstellar civilizations. They're all part of a sort of League of Nations or a, a United Nations organization that maintains peace and the balance of power in space. It doesn't permit uh, violent territorial expansion without like approval of a sort of council meeting. And that's really difficult to get. In fact, I think I have the impression, at least, that that permission is never given, actually. But there is an empire that wants to expand anyway, and its leadership has set their sights on humanity. But they can't do it outright. They can't do it as a, a simple matter of expansion without running afoul of this uh, League of Nations. And so they need to covertly establish a, a real pretense for invasion here. And to do that, they have infiltrated the highest levels of human government. And the thing is that Gosain is going to stop them. And the deal is that He's actually a synthetic person and has spare bodies hanging around in a, a secret location. 
synthetic might not quite be right there, but I'm just using that as a shorthand at this point. We can take that up as a discussion point later. But <laughs> but at any rate, his brain is connected to some kind of computer that records his experiences and can essentially transfer his consciousness to the next body when he dies, which, which does happen only once in the book. So it's not like a, a superpower in that sense. He's not going through bodies, you know, left and right here. But the other deal is that he also has a second brain. He has a latent brain that he's going to have to learn how to use. And this brain is going to give him crazy telekinetic powers, uh, you know, like teleportation, in fact, and also, you know, shooting electricity as well, which yeah, I didn't realize how much of the Return of the Jedi was in here. I missed the Jedi <laughs> fight and I missed the Ewoks, apparently. Uh, but again, he's not really a superhero, even with this. These powers don't come into play actually all that much. Uh, instead... The foreign invasion is stopped at first, really, because the non-Aristotelian practitioners, the Null A practitioners on Venus, are able to wage an unexpected guerrilla war against the invaders and inflict massive and, and surprising casualties on them. And then second, because the leadership of the invasion has gotten obsessed with Gosen's second brain and the, the multiple bodies and really with trying to figure out who's controlling him, who he works for. And at the end of the book, it turns out actually to be an older version of Gosain himself, who has used our protagonist version of Gosain to lure the leadership of the invasion into a trap to kill them. And and that really wraps up the the plot. That wraps up the invasion story. And and also in this final scene, we we learn a bit more about the premise of Van Vogt's speculative world, which we're we're definitely going to get to in the the other segments. But this feels like one of the longer <laughs> synopses I've done for these types of episodes in a while, Brandon, because this book has a lot of plot. It has so much plot, Glenn. <laughs> it's just so full of plot. It, this this book is plot the novel. I mean, like it is <laughs> it is so focused on action and activity and growing all of this information in all these crazy ways that it's hard to imagine how it really hangs together. It's hard to feel it hanging together as you're reading it, even as the prose is highly serviceable, engaging. There's all kinds of cool details about the world, like people wear plastic clothes that they can throw away, which that's a terrible idea, right? Because <laughs> it's just like destroying the earth. I mean, the intergalactic plot is insane because it's basically the leaders of earth trying to break a treaty with some intergalactic government that they've kept secret to force the intergalactic government to invade earth, to destroy the Nole way of being in some way. It's very hard to parse out. Uh, but I think, th yeah, the, the most important thing to think of this story as kind of the grounding point in terms of the philosophy behind the novel is this Gilbert Gosain being essentially immortal and that he's got all of these clones or synthetic versions of himself that once he learns the next stages of being, he can activate and pass his knowledge on to them. And that's pretty important to uh, kind of Van Vogt's concept of, I don't know, just general concept of what he's trying to do. And that only the right types of people should become immortal because they're not interested in power and wealth and all this other stuff. But I'll, I'll get into all of that in just a, just a moment, I suppose. 
Yeah, that is going to be next up on the outline. But I, I just want to say a few more things about the plot before we transition into that. Because yeah, this this book is, I mean, it's, it's riveting. I read this book very quickly. I was just turning pages. It's exciting. The prose does move at a, at a, at a clip. This, the scenes are, are short. The chapters are short as well, which really keeps things moving. And, and really every chapter does end with at least some form of a game changer or a cliffhanger so that you want to keep moving through the story. All of that is, I think, expertly done. But it was also totally dizzying. I felt kind of out of breath every time I was reading. After about 20 minutes, I'd feel like I hadn't been breathing in a while because so much was happening. And this is one of those moments, I think, that you were talking about earlier, Brandon, about sort of the mistake of having read all of the material on the book before reading any of the material in the book, which is that I was really primed for this to essentially be uh, philosophy masquerading as a science fiction novel. But, but, but that's not what's happening at all. This is a dizzying political thriller just thick with plot and plot twist after plot twist with the philosophical material really woven in in a way that actually could be really even invisible to you if that's not what you're there for and uh, and this is actually really where Brandon I need you to step in and and talk to me about Aristotle and also non-Aristotle or Aristotelianism and non-Aristotelianism and what is going on with the presence of philosophy in this book well, let me just start before I get into this by saying my notes are a complete mess on this uh, on this <laughs> section. So I fully expect you, Glenn, to you know interrupt and ask questions as needed. But I mean, the real question is, and something that kept me reading the book, apart from uh, the urgency of Van Vogt's prose, was waiting for that description of what non-Aristotelianism actually is, and. A big feature of this novel, something we haven't talked about, about this novel as artifact, is that uh, about a third of the chapters, maybe half the chapters, start with epigrams. And Van Vogt doesn't identify who these people are. He just gives you their initials. And so I went and tried to attribute all of the epigrams to make sense of what's going on. And that opened up the book for me in a big way, particularly because so many of the people he's, he's referencing are important in the development, the development of mathematics or science or something like that. But the key figure here is somebody named Alfred Korzybski. And he is mentioned in this novel kind of a few times, but he might as well be another science fiction person. I, I don't know if you got that sense. Did you feel like Korzybski was a real person or had you heard of him before reading this novel, Glenn? Well, I had heard of him before, but actually only because the the very famous phrase, the map is not the territory, which is actually a phrase that I first heard in, in the army. I don't know if you heard it there as well, Brandon, is uh, attributed to him. It's something he, he said, but that's the only real reason I, I knew anything about him. Right. And we're going to have to talk about just you know, what that phrase means, because it's pretty important to the novel. But before we get into Korzybski, who is the central figure in the philosophy and thought, conceptual thought behind the creation of this novel, uh, let's just briefly touch on Aristotle here. And uh, just so we can do a, a, a very brief pressy to get what Korzybski is referring to when he's uh, developed his philosophy of non-Aristotelianism. So Aristotle was a student of Plato who went on to challenge, uh, but also synthesize a lot of Plato's thought. Uh, he was a philosopher in Greece from about 384 to 322 BC. 
he is foundational in the development of logic, in metaphysics, in ethics, which is really what I know him for, in aesthetics, uh, and really poetry, which is another big thing. He, you know, the three unities of uh, were really important to Aristotle, uh, which is to set your story in a place and time with everything moving towards harmony. So uh, Aristotle was also a literary critic of his time, essentially super important in the foundation of Western philosophy, uh, very important in philosophy when you move into how Christian theology influences uh, philosophy in Thomas of Aquinas sort of rediscovering Aristotle, which is why we have a lot of Aristotelian stuff now. Um, and so scholasticism becomes this kind of movement towards Aristotle as a foundation for theology rather than Neoplatonism, though uh, my brother-in-law assures me that they are very similar if you dig deep <laughs> into it. He's a theologian. He's getting his PhD in that. And we often talk about Pseudo-Dionysius and, and Thomas and the merging of Neoplatonism and, and, and scholasticism. But so that's really brief, right? So now let's talk about Korzybski briefly before we try to explain what is going on here. Korzybski wrote a track that gave this book its title, essentially. And that track was a founding track in Korzybski's school of thought uh, of general semantics, and it's called Science and Sanity, an Introduction to Non-Aristotelian Systems and General Semantics. So that's the book that you read if you want to figure out what's going on behind this novel. I did not have time to read the whole book, but what I did find was most of the other quotes that... Van Vogt uses as epigrams were quotes that Korzybski used in this book about general semantics and non-Aristotelianism. Um, really briefly, I keep on saying briefly, though none of this is brief, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm just trying to keep, keep you all listening. Uh, what Korzybski was thinking in his use of the term non-Aristotelianism was a mode of using logic and science and psychology and language that would revolutionize our culture uh, in the same way that non-Euclidean geometry or Riemannian geometry laid the groundwork for non-Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics and theor the theory of relative the theory of relativity. Um, so really what he has in mind here is a big overhaul of the old systems. And so that's kind of what he's going after when he says non-Aristotelianism is the huge influence that Aristotle's philosophy has had in our culture is due for a kind of revolution, a new kind of discovery in the same way that Ryman discovered a new type of geometry, that Einstein discovered a new type of physics. So the non-Aristotelianism is almost incidental, though he is going after specific things. Before I go after the things that Korzybski is going after in Aristotle, uh, which I, in my opinion, he's completely wrong about, but that's the weeds we're trying to avoid. That's the rough, rough on the golf course that we don't want to get into. Um, I, I want to talk about another really important thing in Kor Korzybski's thought that uh, influences this novel and, and particularly the way it ends where this whole thing has been about immortality all along. 
Korzybski had this notion that he called time binding. And essentially, he thought that something that humans do is pass down knowledge through time and through generation that grow our technological and general knowledge scopes. Like this is not an unusual thought at all, right? When we have a new body of knowledge that's created, say Einstein's physics, that changes the knowledge that came before it, it doesn't take as long a time to teach it to the next generation of students as it does to discover it. And he calls this time binding. And so that's essentially what's going on with the immortality plot here, is that the perfectly integrated mind, the non-Aristotelian mind, is the mind best equipped to be immortal because they can pass the knowledge of the previous life to the same person who has that perfect mind. So that is a feature of this novel as well that came from Korzybski's school of thought. Just before I let you jump in and ask questions, if you have any, Glenn, uh, I'll say a little about Alfred Korzybski now, too. He was a Russian intelligence officer in World War I, and he, like many uh, of his ilk and class, really became disenchanted and dismayed by the way that technology was used to create carnage, to flame hatreds, to expand mayhem uh, that seems to him to be a real problem of technological growth, that technology grows hand in hand with warfare and the needs of warfare and not the needs of improvement, making things better. So his sense that knowledge is tied to warfare really is what led him down this path of rethinking how we develop scientifically and technologically uh, and and this is really reductive, but uh, as a result of his experiences in World War One, he wanted to know how it was that humans have progressed so rapidly in science and mathematics and engineering, but have continued to exhibit behaviors that result in misunderstanding, suspicion, bigotry, hatred, and even violence in dealing with other people and culture. And this essentially came down to a problem of language for him. It's real clear. We're going to talk more about this when it's uh, my turn to take up some of the the motifs here. But it's real clear that the world of Noel A and then everything that it's drawing on are real artifacts of the first half of the 20th century. And uh, Korzybski, you know, can hear from the name, Polish. He grew up in Warsaw, which was, of course, part of the Russian Empire at that point. But that also meant that his homeland was one of the principal battlefields of the First World War. And he was wounded in the war as well uh, in uh, 1916, uh, really when Tolkien was wounded as well. Obviously not the same engagement. I just will always draw a parallel to Tolkien if that is possible. <laughs> Uh, but he, uh, he he was wounded and didn't go back to, to fighting because he, he was too wounded to, to do that and uh, instead spent the rest of his time uh, helping to sell war bonds in Canada and the United States in order to uh, to fund the war and in particular to get money to, to Russia, uh, who of course eventually bows out of the war. And because of the communist revolution in Russia at this time, he, he never went back to live in Europe. He remained in the United States. But you know, and, and so for him in many many, many ways, the First World War was an absolute tragedy as it, it was for, well, really for everyone, because in fact, it was simply just objectively an absolute tragedy, though the extent to which that was true on an individual basis, you know, perhaps varies subjectively. 
and, and and I hear that coming through when I hear you talking about the things he was interested in and his the idea of really kind of advancing the the science of logic, I suppose, ushering in or helping to usher in sort of a new phase of humanity. And then we see that clearly picked up in the world of Null A, where Van Vogt is envisioning how Korzybski's work is going to help us reach our own perfection or at least strive for it and make a world that has peace in a way that the actual world that Van Vogt and Korzybski are both living in simply does not. One thing that's really striking when you kind of dig into Korzybski's philosophy a little bit into the motivation behind his philosophy is how Van Vogt has essentially turned this into a kind of war novel, right? <laughs> Where the person who is striving for this perfect null A state of being, the non-Aristotelians on Venus are all able to act in self-motivated ways that I guess you could say are about the preservation of their own life, not about the fear that others are going to take from their life. And so it's a really a question of motivation. We've joked about the Battle of Endor. I think we'll make that joke 70 <laughs> more times in this, in this podcast. But uh, yeah, that's a real feature of this novel is that the war scene is essentially people who are motivated to preserve life are faced with an actual war. And so Van Vogt is also thinking through, well, what happens if a non-Aristotelian who has found through this type of striving of being to live at peace and harmony with others, to not engage in misunderstandings and suspicion and bigotry and hatred, what happens when they're confronted with a violence force? So he's kind of taking this uh, philosophy and putting it in a world that he knows as well. Well, just before we were talking about this, I talked about how Korzybski really saw these problems as a problem of language and general semantics, uh, or his general semantics grew out of this, what he saw as a problem of language. And what Korzybski then engaged with was a question that filled a lot of books really from Kant onwards, which is namely approaching the question of what is a thing in itself? What is a thing as it stands apart from our subjective encounter with it? And that encounter is often mediated through structures of language, tradition, attitudes, and belief states, and so on. Korzybski uh, believed and this is where the non-Aristotelian kind of thought really comes in, that there is no such thing as a thing in itself, and that all objects are mediated through the structure of language, and that especially when we mediate our relationships with others, with people who are outside of our own being, us being a thing in ourselves, when we mediate our relationships with others through what's called intentional, with an S, attitudes, we're preferencing our own belief states and attitudinal dispositions to the object rather than encountering the object in an extensional state, which is more uh, like an empirical disposition. It's more, what are the features of this object? What is it doing? What, you know, how is it behaving? Um, that give us more of a, a kind of a scientific method approach to everything. So the goal of non-Aristotelianism in this sense um, would be, I don't know, maybe almost pragmatic. It would be a way to reduce 
our mediation of the object and especially the abstractions we use as shortcuts to understanding that object to get closer to the object's reality to us. Now that that's a very confusing, but I think we can clear this up here by this really famous Korzybski quote that Glenn, you knew, I, I heard it a lot, but never knew who would, who it was attributed to, which is that the map is not the territory. It means that our symbols are not the thing. Our reference for objects are not what we're referring to. When we're in that intentional state, we're referring to our beliefs about the object. What we need to do is get to an extensional mode of thinking and language, which refers to the object in some more or less unmediated way. The language then is a tool of abstraction that creates distance from the object. We want to be close to the object or the situation. When we add our behavior and especially our patterns of behavior into the mix of language, this is where Korzybski thinks we can really end up doing gnarly stuff and it doesn't let us address our situation clearly. So this is why in the novel, Gossain is always doing the most insane thing in the whole world, <laughs> which is not referring to his own feelings about what's going on, but is quickly trying to adjust to the new information in the situation so that he can have a proper map of the territory, both in terms of his relation to the situation, but also in the way that he process other people's emotions and the way that those emotions might color that situation with relation to their motivation and goals. So when we're thinking about how Aristotle comes into play here in Aristotelian logic, what we're really dealing with is the primary, uh, the first claim of Aristotelian logic, which is the identity claim, where A equals A. Korzybski saying A does not equal A because A is an artifact of our language that allows us to abstract so much, so many other things that don't give us a clear picture of what's going on. And this is why in chapter seven of the book, Van Vogt quotes Aristotle here, and I think it's meant to be a negative quote, which is, to be acceptable as scientific knowledge, a truth must be a deduction from other truths. I think in Korzybski's model of language, he's really thinking that that leads to such levels of abstraction that we're always missing the mark. And something like that will allow us to build a gun that shoots 200 rounds a minute because we can abstract all these things and not think about the situation, the territory that that gun is going to be used in. That is all very complex, Glenn. I, I wonder if you have any questions or anything that needs clarified. Uh, I did the best I could and tried to keep it as focused as possible, but it's kind of really, I don't know, thorny philosophical stuff that I, that I just kind of went through. Well, if I've understood you correctly, let, let me actually just try to apply it to the the story that we're talking about, the book that we're talking about, and then you can correct my my understanding of what you're trying to tell us here. But I think for me, this highlights then what we see Gosain doing in the the book when he is actually trying to take stock of situations in a, a, a way that almost jettisons his entire sense of self in order to ascertain the, the real objectivity of the situation, right? right? Trying to get rid of his own subjective filters. And I hadn't quite made the connection this strongly uh, until hearing you talk about this, Brandon, but this feels really kind of like the origin of 
Star Trek's Vulcans, where their whole thing is, we just act logically and don't have emotions. Gosain clearly has feelings. I mean, the whole opening of this book is that he's really sad about his wife, uh, and then also rather upset when he discovers that the whole thing is a, a sham, that people have been messing with his mind. But he is able to s- set that aside, it may be one way to put it, suppress, uh, perhaps would be another way to put it, and try to see situations as logically as possible and then take the only logically dictated course of action. That's my sense of it. I I think that's a really fair way to summarize what's going on here. And Falcons are probably a really good example to use here. Though, you know, Van Vogt here does on purpose give Gosain this emotional handicap of feeling widowed and the constant resonant feelings that come up with Patricia Hardy as the novel continues. I think Van Vogt believes that achieving like a kind of clear vision, supposing that one is always motivated to live, and perhaps this is the chief motivation of a person, you know, as we see in all this immortality stuff, that if a person is motivated to live, they will act in a way that preserves their own life even if you know you might end up losing your life in the process of saving it, which is what happens to to Gosin a, a number of times, and also in Denali's battle of Endor slash the Battle of Venus at the end of the <laughs> or in, about two thirds of the way through the novel. So, I think Gosin is given this emotional handicap because he's supposed to go through these three stages of transformation. He has to learn what it's like to have this feeling of connection to others that color. Uh, his belief states. And so we see in the quote unquote growth of Gosin, how belief states impact our ability to perceive a situation or other objects clearly. And then he moves further and further from that. And supposedly, you know, in the third body he would come to inhabit, none of that would be the case, but he'd still have compassion, empathy. He'd understand the value of human life. And so be a near perfect person because you have to have those things in order to be well as a human being. It's just not given to us clearly in this novel what what's going on. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of all I have to say about Korzybski and his philosophy in this book in, in the best way that I can, that I'll try to sum it up here, that it's a problem of identity, which is clear in the novel. A does not equal A not just because making identity claims is really difficult in infinitely complex objects, especially the more we know about them, but especially when it comes to being a human being. Gosain does not equal Gosain. Uh, and that's a core feature of this novel. And, and, and the, the reason why that's the case is because language creates, and especially when we use chains of language, in order to make deductions, it creates too many abstra- abstract categories that we then have to wade through in order to encounter something real. And the real is not the thing in itself. It's the thing which is informed by, I guess you might call it like uh, 
intersubjective experience. So you have to take into account everything else, its use, its pragmatic use, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. And so Gosain is kind of the core object of this novel that demonstrates through his growth non-Aristotelianism and why we can't make these strict identity claims, why the flaw in Aristotelian logic starts with the identity claim where A equals A. And then it goes into how you know, language is a problem in helping us to even understand what a thing is. And then our, when our beliefs and negative emotions get in the way, that leads to violence and perhaps global or intergalactic conflict. Well, that really opens the book up for me. I I do wonder, uh, maybe we'll take this up in, in the craft segment, as I'll just say here, I do wonder why we didn't get more of a precis on exactly this in the book, why we don't get that kind of uh, stock uh, characteristic of exactly this type of science fiction novel in which uh, one character explains all of that to another. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, elements of this type of book, and it was just kind of missing here. But this has really opened up what's going on. And, you know, there might be something said, though, as well, for forcing us to think about it, to try to read between the lines, to suss out the, the meaning here. But it's maybe no surprise that really at the core here, what Van Vogt is getting at is trying to envision a way or a genuinely, to him anyway, plausible way in which how human beings who at the time that he is writing this book for publication in magazines are in the midst of waging the Second World War, uh, in the midst of committing a horrible genocide, he's trying to envision how human beings might actually overcome all of that and build a better version of ourselves and build a better world for us to live in and perhaps seeing the world for what it really is and, and overcoming the obstacles that language actually creates certainly would be an important step in that. And so that's a very cool idea. It, it is a super cool idea. The core flaw in Fanfoat's plan was willfully obscuring, you know, like the names of the people that he uses in epigrams <laughs> and bringing up Corbett, Corbett, Korzybski in this kind of obscure and abstruse way where like if you this book was not like widely read it was not like a well-known text extremely well-known that you know it's almost accidental that Van Vogt came across it he should have done more I think and I agree with you here to to explicate what he's working with instead of asking his readers, uh, especially since he's hidden a lot of the epigrams, the names of the people in the epigrams that he's citing, to go and do that extra work. But maybe, I don't know, in, in, in the 1940s, TV sets weren't in every home yet, and you had a library card, and, and maybe that was a better way to spend a couple months after reading this book. <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, let's move into the other thing that we want to do here in the themes and motifs segment, which is really to talk about the way that Van Vogt is is playing with, or in some cases, uh, laying the foundation for, or in inventing in some way, a lot of of, of tropes and sort of classic uh, motifs of science fiction of this era, and 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 talk about some other ways that we see that manifest and, and try to sew it all up. And the first thing that I really want to talk about here is everything that Brandon has really just laid out here about what Noel A is and and what that does for Gosain. And it's just general interest in 
human evolution, human perfection, right? The sort of teleological uh, quest for perfection of humanity, this vision of how we are not yet our best selves. We're not living in our best society, which is very clear to everyone uh, at the at the time, certainly in 1945, but that we can achieve that. And there's a, a type of science fiction or a mode of science fiction that is you know, looking at how that might come about. And sometimes it's looking at how it has come about, creating a kind of aspiration for us. Other times it's showing us that in progress. And I think Van Vogt actually kind of tries to do both here. Another big part of this, though, just generally speaking in science fiction, is mental abilities. There's also this sense that uh, our brains are not being used. We're not using our brains to our full capacity. We can actually do more with our brains if only we could learn how to use them better. Uh, certainly, I grew up with being told over and over again that we actually only use about 20% of our brain. And, you know, what's the other 80% for, which it turns out is, you know, total <laughs> nonsense. It's not clear that any. Uh, any neurologist ever actually said that, and certainly no neurologist today would say anything like that. But this was where there was room for things for pe- things like you know telekinesis and uh, mind reading and uh, telepathy and all of that sort of thing. And all three of these types of things, the mental abilities, this sort of quest for uh, perfection of the human as uh, an organism and the, the quest for perfection in human society is just all over the science fiction of the, the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Uh, other big writers here, of course, Alfred Bester, who uh, I've also just gotten a commission to do The Demolished Man by him. So, you know, that'll be forthcoming on ATOS soon. Uh, Philip K. Dick, of course, as well, who we've, we've already mentioned, was uh, hugely influenced by Van Vogt and I think really saw himself as the, the intellectual inheritor of Van Vogt. These guys wrote a ton about television. Uh, telepaths and other types of like psychic abilities. A lot of the Star Trek, the original series episodes are about humans developing like, you know, crazy brain powers. Uh, The 1960s is also when we get the X-Men, which is also attempting to envision not just sort of the uh, you know next phase in human evolution through these mutations, through these mutants, but is also actively about the quest for making a better world for everybody. Uh, but really, really, there's just this general interest in humanity overcoming its limitations, morally, physically, and, and mentally, that grows out of the experience of the first half of the, the 20th century. And obviously here, right in, in the world of Noel A., we get this like latent second brain that we just need the null A training to learn how to to use. And, you know, then we're going to be better than we've ever been before, uh, but also attaining this perfection, right? Or this, this sort of maybe next stop on the road to perfection also requires this specialized and totally, uh, totally obscure and complicated philosophical training, which is also going to require the proper social circumstances in order to carry out on a wide scale. I mean, that's really what we see Van Vogt doing here. And ultimately, this is, and maybe you might feel differently about this, Brandon, but I I really had the impression that ultimately, uh, Van Vogt's worldview here is actually quite pessimistic, but it's masquerading (laughs) as optimism in that He's really showing that by nature, as we exist now, we're pretty awful. And in fact, I'm going to read a, a passage here to illustrate that. 
This is a, a speech that is uh, delivered by by one of the human characters who's uh, a, a villain in the story, and this is pretty pretty early on. This is actually page forty seven of the the edition that that we're using. And here's what he says. He says, we are men who would have been doomed to minor positions if we had accepted the rule of the machine and the philosophy of Noel A. We are highly intelligent and capable in every respect, but we have certain ruthless qualities in our natures that would normally bar us from great success. 99% of the world's history was made by our kind, and you may be sure it shall be so again. And so really what he's saying is that you've got to be a kind of ruthless psychopath to make anything of yourself in the world that we, uh, the readers, both in 1945 and presumably still today in the 21st century, and that Van Vogt's vision is how we're going to overcome that. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Uh, You know, this book is deeply pessimistic. It's kind of saying on one level, if you could get a bunch of people to get past themselves, to get out of their own way, to stop even viewing themselves abstractly as a series of cause and effects from their past or something like that. I mean, this is, I'm going to return to this identity thing just briefly, where literally the end of the first beat of the novel is this identity problem. Gosein is not Gosein. His past isn't even his past. How he thinks about who he is, is just entirely wrong. He has to reframe his whole sense of self, as you brought up, Glenn, and identity. That if you can get people past all this stuff to interact, I don't know, almost neutrally in ways that aren't informed, that people don't even become abstractions to them, this is a huge problem in war, right? One of the biggest goals in early propaganda efforts in any war is to dehumanize the enemy, which is to make an abstraction of them that makes it easy to kill. And this pessimistic view is really suffused throughout this novel. And I think what Van Vogt is looking at here is that even games that are designed to bring out the best in people are still games, which is to say they are an abstraction and a piece of life itself. And every game can be rigged. And so every like every abstraction is a problem in its own way because it can be twisted and turned towards those who would unethically use the game, so to speak, to cement their own power and status and wealth in a society. You're right, exactly. The pessimism here really is in the idea that, yes, a a better world is possible. Look, we can attain it. It's going to be cool. But the thing that we need to do is not change something about our political system or our economic system or our, our social relations. It's actually that we have to change something fundamental about who we are, what we are actually just as like biological organisms. We have to overcome the flaws in our own brains. And this actually really, to me, and and I think we might end up doing quite a bit more of this as we continue through our outline here, Brandon, but this really jumps out to me in comparison with Starship Troopers, which we are hot off of recording three episodes on and is more or less contemporary with this. I mean, you know, it's it's like 15 years later, 14 years later, but close, you know, close enough, right? Closer to each other than we are to either <laughs> of them, I'll say. Uh, and, you know, both written by people who are golden age writers who lived through the Second World War and so on. And the Starship Troopers eh, maybe has some pessimism about humans as well. I mean, I I was arguing there that Heinlein is essentially a Hobbesian who thinks we're all 
kind of savages and kind of awful to each other. But his solution is not that we need to radically transform our own brains, but just that we need to build some social rules that control that. That That's right. I, I, that's a really great comparison into kind of the two different philosophies where what Van Vogt sees as endemic to human beings and uh, a problem of our own minds, the violence, the brutality, the animalistic nature that needs to be unleashed rather than integrated. All of those things that we find in Heinlein are kind of the root of the pessimism in this novel that even the ways in which we use to manage those things, to bring out the best of people in society, to assure that the best people are are in the right jobs and things like that can be rigged. And so it's not a matter of, strictly speaking, finding out how to uh, channel our animalistic energy. It's to fully integrate it with ourselves. And then once we do that, once that discovery is fully made by one person, which is Gosain's ultimate goal in this novel to achieve perfect sanity. Once that discovery is made, it can be taught. And the mysterious person behind all of this stuff, the immortal person at the novel who was Gosain, is living these lifetimes in order to try to determine how to make that discovery, in order to make that discovery. And they seem to get closer with every iteration, but they're not there yet. And another element here in in the quest for perfection, of course, is that, yeah, we're not there yet. And so what we actually need to have in order to maintain peace and stability and to have scientific flourishing in the world is we need to put an actual computer in control. And, and maybe even that fact should should clue us into the idea that the, the perfection that we're seeking here is to become more like computers ourselves, or at least have the ability to see the world the way that a computer would so that we can make Make the best decisions. But, you know, we, we can't do that completely yet. And so we actually have put a computer in control of society and computers being in control of society is also all over the science fiction of the 40s, the 50s and the 60s. Uh, Philip K. Dick, right, again, sort of creative heir of Van Vogt, takes this up a lot, but most especially in his early short fiction. And then this is, I think, really probably most famous for, again, being in tons of Star Trek, the original series episodes. I, I don't actually know how many episodes it's in, but, it, you know, it's in a lot. And, and I should say for listeners who are unaware of this, you know, I, I keep invoking Star Trek here because, hey, we do a Star Trek show on the network. That's something I do with my uh, uh, co-host, uh, Valerie Hoagland. And we've also been thinking a lot about Star Trek, the original series lately. But I want to talk about this uh, computer, the games machine here, Brandon, because I, I, I have questions about how this actually works or, or really even what is the benefit of this? Like what are people on earth getting out of this computer control? We, we definitely still see that there is, you know, there's still some human government. This is actually even what gets you know corrupted here. This is the story of how that is still corruptible. Uh, also money is still a thing. There just clearly are haves and, and have-nots in this world. And crime is also still a thing. There, there does seem to be heavy emphasis on order that just disappears during the actual games, but that the humans here want to take advantage of that, right? That when the computer is not looking, when the computer shuts itself off, leap at the opportunity to commit you know, crimes against people. So it's not really clear to me what actually the computer is doing and, and what it really is offering society here. 
So I, I read the computer's role in the story more as a critique of the idea that technology will save humanity. It's certainly an idea, you know, that you, you've mentioned is all over science fiction, golden age of sci-fi. I mean, the, the kind of most grotesque version of this type of story is uh, Harlan Ellison's story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which I think is the, the ultimate critique of this idea that if we, we can transcend our humanity via technology. What the, because this novel is so many novels in one, like so many ideas, it seems as though the, at first as though the machine is there in order to ensure the reproduction of Nolle philosophy to remove the perfect Nolles from Earth, to give them a home on Venus, which does not have money and commerce and all that stuff in the same way, but to continue to be able to find those people and to incentivize them to change their minds and ways. It also puts people in power who they th- who they think ought to be in power. So the machine is kind of uh, representative in my mind of this, uh, the opacity of authority that the promise of technology brings in facing humanity. And that that's a bad sentence. So let me try to clean that up a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> what I mean is that Who's behind the computer? Who programmed it? Where does it come from? Once we have a computer, why does it become an object of authority with nothing behind it? And so I read this novel because the computer gets destroyed in it. Uh, Gossin learns to go on his own and to make his own decisions and to no longer rely on the computer for help. I read this as Van Vogt's critique of the idea that the technological utopia will be the best utopia. Well, that's a really great observation. And I think that is at the root of the, the anxiety that I was having about this was that it was just simply not clear to me in what way the computer was making this society awesome. And I, I think pointing out that, well, it's not. And that's actually the point. I think it's this great <laughs> job of answering my question because it also was totally unclear, like like how it actually goes about controlling people or even like like what mechanisms in society, what aspects of society it, it is controlling and how it does that. It is not a particularly detailed spec world here, right? That's not the sort of uh, detail. That's not the sort of thing that Van Vogt is really uh, paying attention to here. And, and, and I think that sort of makes sense. It's really actually right. The, it is the games machine, right? It is actually really here seemingly just to dis- determine who has done a good job of attaining the right level or, you know, high enough level of null A to actually go live in the real utopia that doesn't require a computer. Because if you require the computer, then that's not, as you say, Brandon, the real utopia. Yeah, exactly. And and I will say, yeah, the how everything works in this world is not part of the world building. Instead, we get stuff as I brought up in the class in, in the top of the episode, things like plastic, uh, plastic clothing, plastic disposable clothing, uh, telephones and shoes, just all kinds of like gadgetry and, and, and nonsense that I, I absolutely love about this novel, <laughs> you know, unironically, that kind of Logan's run feel to it. Oh, absolutely. That's what it has. And and that's the last thing I want to talk about here is really actually just to uh, wax as poetical as I can about the awesomeness that is Venus as it's conceived here in this book, because we, we haven't sent probes to Venus yet at this point. We don't really know that much about it. I think we might know more about it than Van Vogt is, uh, is allowing uh, here. But he's envisioning Venus as a planet that is 
perfectly habitable by humans if only we had the the ability to get there much in the way that you know mars often is there is you know some history of venus being conceived this way in science fiction as well just less so than mars but venus is a really cool really weird planet as it's conceived of here just in its flora and and fauna and maybe most especially just the flora it's characterized chiefly by massive massive trees trees that are super thick they're just like miles high and people are also living in them you can carve out into the the trunk of a tree you can carve out uh, a home uh you make a house that we would actually perhaps recognize ourselves as a you know type of 20th century american house with you know living room and a kitchen and uh, climate control and electricity and running water and windows all of that you can build into the trunk of this tree and presumably out of the trunk of the tree in in some way and you, they can have tunnels in these trees that connect to other things and uh that was just super cool just the kind of natural ideas or the, the, the just the kind of natural landscape of venus as he's imagining it but of course venus is really here to just be home to this space utopia, right? It's only for people with this high degree of null A training. There is no need for government here because everyone just knows what is best and just does it. No one has any kind of ennui about what they're doing with their life because everyone is able to simply take a, a objective look at society and see what jobs need filling and recognize that filling those jobs are going to be the contribution that they will make and they do that. So there's none of the sort of angst and ennui that, you know, we all have here on Earth because people have achieved this training. That's right. I mean, another example of Venus representing a paradise that's specifically for humans, that's without predation. By that, I mean like predatory animals. You don't really even get a sense of the animals on this planet that much. It's almost a place that is perfectly designed for human habitation in perfect harmony with nature. And that is, you know, C.S. Lewis's conception of Venus in his uh, second novel of his space trilogy, Pure Landra. And I wonder, I forgot to look at the publication history of that, but, uh, you know, I wonder how much that idea of Venus uh, as a representative of that kind of utopia is uh, present in, in more science fiction than I'm aware of. It is actually present in quite a lot of science fiction. For some reason, though, we just really became obsessed with Mars, uh, particularly in film, and, and maybe actually simply because, hey, you can film something that looks like your visions of Mars really not too far from Los Angeles, whereas <laughs> making whereas making uh, you know <laughs> Venus is sort of like magic tree land or you know Endor, I suppose <laughs> that takes a little more doing in order to to film that. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a big part of <laughs> why that has not entered the pop culture uh, sense of science fiction nearly as. As much as uh, as Mars has, well, let's uh, let's move into talking about the craft of this book. We've been dancing around that a little bit, but let's let's start with the the, the big stuff. Let's start with the storytelling elements here, and and really, what I want to do is just. Uh, well, what I want to do is really just kick back and listen to you, Brandon. Tell me how this novel works as a political thriller, because thrillers are not a, a genre that I read much of. It's not a genre that I really like all that much, to be honest. Uh, and so I don't know that much about it. I don't really know what the rules and conventions are. I don't know the the history of this genre in, in any way. So uh, anything you can do to shed some light on that for me, Brandon, would be great. And I'm going to make some popcorn. 
Okay, well, I think you'll find a lot of what I'm uh, going to talk about fairly familiar because I'm going to be relying on a, uh, a concept used in a lot of uh, political thrillers, which is the idea of the wrong man. Uh, it's a type of story that Hitchcock really made famous in films like uh, well, the wrong man, <laughs> the man who knew too much, uh, North by Northwest. All of these films have been spoofed in a in a Bill Murray movie called The Man Who Knew Too Little that I used to love as a, as a teen. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I wonder if it holds up. But the basic concept of the wrong man trope in a political thriller, and here, a political thriller is just a novel that uses uh, politics to structure all the suspense and tension, the the interworkings of people's political machinations and minds. Uh, but the wrong man then is a normal person that gets caught up, caught up in all of this, a person with mundane concerns and interests that's essentially mistaken for someone else that a bunch of people in the kind of high abstract world of politics are trying to get to. And that person, the wrong man, has no idea why or even what they're caught up in. So, you know, in that conceptualization of the story, Gosin not actually knowing what's going on isn't a flaw of this type of story. It's it's a feature. It's what this type of story does well. But Van Vogt really takes this concept to its logical extreme because here neither Gosin nor anyone surrounding him actually knows why he's important and what's going on. All they know is that there is a master game player behind everything. So what's happening here is that Gosain is being used by all of these parties uh, who are motivated by something or other, you know, who knows what really intergalactic war, political power, prestige, avoiding a scandal, uh, and they're trying to position him in a way that brings out the master player of the game, while Gosain is trying to learn how to be free by changing allegiances as they suit his purpose. And this also gives us a tour of all the powers behind the novel. I will say, though, that, you know, even from early on in this novel, and, I, and I'm going to say right now, the first five chapters of this novel are amazing. Like I was hooked. I thought this book was going to be so different than it was based on the first five chapters. But even early on, something kind of reminded me of the concept behind the show, The Prisoner, that, you know, that weird Kafka-esque Patrick McGowan show from the, from the 1960s. And I just had this sense that I couldn't explain and I can't explain uh, that Gosain was both the victim and the orchestrator of this whole nightmare, which in a way turned out to be true. And I think it's it's that lack of identity that requires of uh, like the void of authority to be filled. That Gosain, by determining his own identity, would be revealed to be the person kind of behind all of this, and uh, that does turn out to be the case. So what I'm saying is. In this kind of wrong man type of story, the Gosain being ignorant of what's actually happening and what his role is, is fine because he's an active protagonist. He's always making choices and making act and taking action. To me, the flaw in Van Vogt using this is not having anybody else know why they need Gosain either. And that can kind of put the brakes on in the reading of this story a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that really makes me appreciate the the book a, a little bit more than I already did, though I was totally with you that, like, especially the beginning of this book just absolutely hooked me. And in ways that most thrillers do not, I, I tend to 
I tend I tend to bounce pretty hard off of thrillers in part actually just because uh, you know something we we talked about is that this book is just so much plot and plot as I've said many times on I think every book club podcast we do on the network <laughs> plot is like the last thing that I go to reading for I go to reading for uh, for setting uh, you know certainly for prose of course but for setting and and mood and atmosphere above all and so you know even the the genres sort of related to thriller that I'm into are uh, hard-boiled detective fiction, especially because I like the hard-boiled world. I kind of just want to go sit in the bar with the detective. I don't really care who did it. That I'm not interested in. I mean, I'll go along for that ride, but really it's just so that I can look at the cityscape as we go by and so on. And I, I like cozy mysteries for that same reason. You know, give me an awesome locked door uh, mystery at some kind of, you know, fancy home. People are on a weekend retreat. Uh, someone's murdered, but mostly the book is actually uh, just about uh, what the house is like and who these <laughs> crazy characters are. I'm into that stuff. But uh, thrillers are just so much about the plot that that doesn't generally appeal to me. But it really did work for me here. This I did enjoy quite a bit. And I, th I think you've done actually a really good job of, you know, explaining, you know, how Van Vogt is working uh, with that and doing an excellent job of it. Yeah. And most of the films I mentioned, with the exception of The Man Who Knew Too Much, which originally was made in, in the 1930s, came out after this novel was written. So I'm I'm not sure to what extent The Wrong Man was uh, kind of really cemented trope in storytelling. So I don't really know that Van Vogt was working with all the kind of reliance we would have now in creating a, a really strong wrong man story. Yeah, certainly this is pretty early for uh, a thriller and, and, and maybe especially for a political thriller, uh, which, of course, is now a, a genre that dominates fiction sales, right? I mean, if you, you take a look at uh, bestseller list, uh, thrillers uh, really, really dominate. Uh, certainly when I worked in a bookstore 20 years ago, almost all of the, the books that we sold the most of were were thrillers. People love these these page turners. They love the, the you know, the intricate plots and the uh, the fact that, you know, every chapter will end as a sort of game changer or a cliffhanger uh, that, you know, propels you on. Uh, this is something people really, really love. Yeah, we now live in a world where uh, Bill Clinton... Uh, has teamed up with James Patterson to write a novel about <laughs> a political thriller, you know, and, and Hillary Clinton has teamed up with somebody, I think, as well, where, you know, and we have pundits like Glenn Beck writing, uh, you know, political thrillers as well, where this is a surefire way, if you can get a ghostwriter and a concept to make a couple a couple thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, and get it to market and sell it and then just move on with your life. So this was not the case, I think, in the in the 1950s to the extent that it is today. Yeah, we're we're going about this uh, this writing business the wrong way, Brandon. I think we need to co-write a political thriller. <laughs> that actually sounds like an absolutely terrible idea. I couldn't do it, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's make a sharp turn here and move into talking about some of the, the criticisms of this book. They might be criticisms that we we share, but what I what we're really up to here is looking at the criticisms that other science fiction writers, other people who are really important in the history of science fiction have leveled at Van Vogt generally, but also this book specifically. 
And the real leader of this is Damon Knight. And Damon Knight is super important to this podcast network, which I'll get to in a moment. But just to introduce who Damon Knight was, Damon Knight was extraordinarily influential as a science fiction writer. Uh, he's best remembered today, I think, for having written the uh, short story To Serve Man, though, of course, that's best remembered for being a really awesome Twilight Zone episode. But Damon Knight was perhaps most important to science fiction for uh, the work that he did as a kind of organizer of science fiction into a community, science fiction writers into a community. He was really important in the development of the Science Fiction Writers Association, which ultimately is how we get things like, hey, the Hugo Awards and Worldcon and so on. But then also he and his wife, uh, Kate Wilhelm, who actually I've covered on on this show, covered on ATOS, one of the very early ATOS episodes was a Kate Wilhelm novel. Uh, He and his wife, Kate Wilhelm, founded the Milford Writers Workshop and then also the Clarion Writers Workshop, which is still in existence today and is still really like the thing you want to get to if you want to be a science fiction writer, right? If you want to be, uh, especially if you want to be a literary science fiction writer, getting into that workshop. And, you know, doing your best there is the surefire way to do that. And so many of my favorite writers have come out of that program. But it is also then a place where science fiction writers go and work as instructors, working with new and up and coming writers. And so there's really this institution has become central to the long continuity of what the genre is and who's working in it and so on. And so Damon Knight was super important for that. He's also really important for this podcast network because Damon Knight essentially took uh, a, a new new writer named Gene Wolfe under his wing and helped him really move from being a mediocre writer attempting to write a political thriller as a novel that we have covered, <laughs> of course, uh, and and uh, as Wolfe himself wrote, grew him from a bean uh, and turned him into one of the greatest of science fiction and fantasy writers of all time. And of course, we do an entire podcast about Gene Wolfe here on the network, the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And so Damon Knight is super important to, to us uh, because he's super important to Gene Wolfe. But uh, here's the deal. He hated Van Vogt as a writer. He did not like any of his books, and he had a lot to say about this one in particular. And I think it would be worth going through at least some of those things and seeing how we feel about Damon Knight's criticism. Just as a quick counterpoint to that, another really important person in science fiction history is John W. Campbell, who, you know, we talked about Van Vogt ripping off that first... (laughs) John W. Campbell story, but guess who he sent it to? He sent it to John W. Campbell, who was editing a magazine. And so, you know, John Campbell kind of had this, I don't know, other kind of relationship, a kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe mentory type of relationship with uh, Van Vogt. So, yeah, I, but yeah, I want to get back into this Damon Knight criticism. I just wanted to to put a counterbalance on that weight, uh, which our thumb is on the scale already. Right. No, I just actually really what should be clear about that at the start here that I think actually more people are on the pro van vote you know side of the scale than the the anti uh but this is maybe just uh, you know i have a real interest of course in the history of science fiction as a, a genre as a publishing category i'm really interested in the golden age as this period where there are these magazine editors and people writing so much and uh, criticizing critiquing each other's work the period where 
these workshops are getting inaugurated and the cons are getting started. You know, Isaac Asimov uh, organizing the first you know science fiction conventions in Philadelphia and so on, all really happening at the same time. Super fascinating to me. But obviously, right, we've talked about Philip K. Dick as kind of the heir of Van Vogt. He loved Van Vogt and was super vocal about it and was, you know, spoke to Damon Knight's criticism. Also, who spoke to Damon Knight's criticism? Someone else you you just uh, invoked, Brandon, and that, that's Harlan Ellison. So there are lots of really great science fiction writers who love Van Vogt. But Damon Knight did something that, that just to my mind does not seem like a very good or frankly professional thing to do, which was to uh, write a really horrible review of this book, which you know, maybe that's okay. But then even on on top of that, Damon Knight really expanded this, this just critical review of this book into a, a big essay about how terrible Van Vogt is as a writer called Cosmic Jerry Builder, colon, A.E. Van Vogt. And he, write, and he writes in there of this novel, he says, far from being a classic by any reasonable standard, the world of Noel A. is one of the worst allegedly adult science fiction stories ever published. And then he goes on to to break that down into four categories, uh, plot, characterization, background, and style, and really just tears this thing up. I don't think that's ever actually called for, you know, in the world of, no. of publishing. If you don't like uh, a colleague's book, that's fine. You don't have to, but uh, this seemed uncalled for, but it's going to give us some fodder for a discussion here. And let's just go through these. I, I'm not going to read too much of what Damon Knight has to say into the microphone. I don't think that's worthwhile, but I'll try to just kind of, you know, take maybe his main point and then we can chew on it a little bit. But as far as plot, I think really what Knight is critical of here is all of the things that you just talked about, Brandon, that go into this as a political thriller. And it just strikes me that maybe Knight also doesn't like thrillers or really understand that that's even a genre at this point. Yeah, it's really hard to say. I, I get I get a, a, a plot critique of this novel, and it would probably be really useful if you are really influenced by an idea and you're like, I want to make that idea my science fiction setting to really do an autopsy on this novel to see what strengths and weaknesses that could have, even from the conceptualization phase as an author. So that's one thing. I don't think Damon Knight does that. I think he just finds that the plot goes in too many directions and nothing really gets resolved at the end in terms of all the big plot machinations. There are certainly resolutions, but they, they're not all very satisfying because ultimately we're misled into thinking first that the book is about, you know, a Hunger Games or Battle Royale type of scenario. Then it's a full-fledged political thriller with the wrong man type tropes. And then it's about a guy who's actually seeking immortality. So we have these three movements that each pull the rug out from the other one as the story continues. That is a fair critique. I think Knight was just, uh, if you read what he's written about this, is is cruel almost in his attacking of uh, Van Vogt's movements through this story. I, I agree, because I, I do also hear what you're saying about the, the way that the plot works. But I think that the real criticism that I would level at the plot of this story is really simply that we needed another chapter or two at the end, because this is a book that feels like it kind of just stops as soon as Gosain gets this sort of dramatic revelation that there's this immortal human who's been on the quest to develop Noel A, to develop human perfection, and that it's him, right, the, the whole time, that that he's a copy of that person. 
And we get a little bit of like a speech at that point that explains a lot of the things that we've already brought into our discussion, but that felt so hasty. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it could have used more of an ending, something that draws out a little bit and maybe gives us also some resolution of Gosain sort of sitting with this, having some feelings about this would have been nice. But yeah, I don't really think I agree with Damon Knight's criticism, or at least the extremity of his criticisms here. Yeah, I like I said, it's this plot is fair game and you can nitpick it to death. Uh, but I think Van Vogt did have something on his mind that he was trying to achieve. Whether he achieved that on his terms or on the reader's terms is up for debate. Uh, but Damon Knight is making what seem to be really objective claims attacking the plot and structure of this novel. Uh, you know, and I, you know, like we said, that might not be so fair. So the next thing on this list is uh, characterization. And, and and here he's really critical of something that you pointed out, Brandon, which is that throughout the story, Gosain is constantly finding himself in uh, kind of ridiculous new situations here, as, as is the reader. And Gosain has this unusual way of sort of stopping in his tracks and attempting to objectively and logically uh, engage with the the new material that he's got here and for Damon Knight this was a real flaw you know but of course you just spent 20 minutes telling us exactly what Van Vogt was up to, that this is not a flaw of the book. This is a feature of the book. This is a characteristic of Noel A. This is him putting into practice this philosophy. Yeah. If you want to go after characterization in this book, you can go after the way that Van Vogt writes Patricia Hardy. (laughs) who was a purely mechanical character in this novel, uh, uh, like in terms of plot, like she's there, she shows up when uh, Gosei needs motivation or whatever. But the real flaw in terms of the development of that character and how she's represented is when we get near the end, when Gosei gets all of his mental powers, but he can't get into the mind of Patricia Hardy. She's inscrutable. And then we get just get a throwaway sentence. It's like, well, maybe all women just, you can't just understand women. <laughs> right. So, There's a lot that, of that, that stuff going yeah. on here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we should absolutely be, be clear that this is not a book with rich characters. None of the characters go saying included are, are rich characters in the way that we, we really want out of our, our literary science fiction, literary speculative fiction, uh, you know, here in, in the early 21st century, we don't get any, of that here because this is this is golden age science fiction this is science fiction as the literature of ideas where you know even damon knight is not doing the sort of thing that uh that someone like uh you know kim stanley robinson or neil stevenson does uh, today the next thing the third item of four here uh is, is is called background by uh damon knight but i think we would maybe call world building or setting and we've talked about this a little bit in that the game machine that you know this computer that controls the world is not really well developed as a concept uh, there's not a real sense of the economics of this world or even like social systems political systems that uh what damon knight says is really is that this is basically just 1945 except that he's changed the date and introduced a few like high-tech gadgets that don't actually matter they're not integrated into society in any way and i guess to me this is actually a pretty fair criticism though i again i think that's not really what the book is about, but it is a fair criticism, I think. Yeah, if we can substitute the word background for world building, 
it's it's a fair criticism of the book. The world building here is not the point of this novel. It's not to give us this rich, deep background of how everything came to be. It's to put a character, it's to put the wrong man in a situation to give the readers a tour of that world in a sense. And he doesn't have a lot he needs to know. Gosain doesn't have a lot he needs to know about that world because he's he's trying to figure out his own situation. So you can... I don't know, take marks off the novel for it not having a, a super detailed background or world building effort. But if you look at what Van Vogt was trying to do with Korzybski's ideas, it is kind of the point. It is to look at, well, what if these non-Aristotelian, this idea of thinking, this way of being is confronted with violence? What is the response to that? And so he's kind of working on a really different level than I think Damon Knight is giving him credit for. I think that's absolutely fair. The last thing that Knight has to say is is about style, what we might call prose or wordsmithing here. And really just the claim that he makes is this is badly written. And I just I just disagree. I mean, it's certainly not the most beautiful, artful prose I've ever read. It's not Gene Wolfe. It's not Kazuo Ishiguro. It's not John Crowley or Ursula Le Guin. That is true. But this was also written at a time when nobody was those people. Nobody was writing science fiction in that literary mode. And to my mind, this was just as serviceable and accessible as anything that Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke were up to. Yeah, this book is certainly fine for addicts of science fiction. <laughs> As it says on the cover. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I also described the prose uh, early on in the episode as highly serviceable, and I'll stand by that. The prose does not get in way in, in the way of itself, nor does it highlight or bring about anything particularly beautiful or amazing. It, it, it really just functions to tell the story, and I, I have no problems with that. It's not... I didn't find a bad sentence in the story where I was like, oh, the, it took me out of the story. It just, it's just there. It's on the page. It's plain, but it really is in service to the plot in a way that uh, even a lot of thriller writers today f- trip over themselves. Uh, so I, I, I found the prose serviceable. That's not, maybe that's damning with faint praise, but like, uh, it's fine. It's fine prose. Yeah, I I agree completely. And really, ultimately, I think that what has happened here is that, you know, Damon Knight, of course, makes a career out of transforming science fiction as a genre and a community, founding these writers' workshops, founding the Writers' Association, or being, you know, uh, participating in the founding of the Writers' Association, getting the cons going, uh, developing the award system, and so on. That Damon Knight is instrumental in the development of science fiction as a a writer's genre, as an artful genre, right? taking science fiction out of the pulps and getting it into literary press, right? Damonite's super important for that. And so really, this actually just reads to me as a criticism of all of golden age and pulp era science fiction. It's Damon Knight complaining about the entire genre for not being to his tastes, for not being literary enough for him. And Van Vogt maybe had the misfortune of becoming the one writer and even really just this book becoming the one book that Damon Knight zoomed in on, right? He read this book and it just kind of brought to fruition his discontent with what science fiction was here in the late 1940s and wrote this 
scathing review of the book that is really a critique of the entire genre, which I find unfair, though I'm glad that Damon Knight did all this work. I like science fiction the way that it exists now, but I also really like going back and reading this Golden Age and Pulp Era stuff, too. Yeah, as we said, I mean, Damon Knight was just deeply unfair and perhaps uh, a skosh unprofessional in his treatment of this novel. <laughs> and I did not know any of this about Damon Knight until looking into this, but which was actually because I was trying to track down sort of the edition history of this book, because there's not that much in the actual physical copy of the book that we have, even though it's it's published by Orb. You know, this is not like some kind of uh, small press or like just print on demand book that we've got. It, it just, but somehow just didn't have as much information uh, inside the book as I wanted it to have. So I was glad that I came across that and, and read Damon Knight's essay. It might actually be, uh, I don't know when we would ever have time for it, but it might actually be fun sometime to really take a look at that and, and just do a soul and epi- just do an episode solely on that. But that is for another time. I think the, the last thing we really want to do here before we close this episode out is to talk about what we liked about the book. What was the, the big strength that this book had for you, Brandon? I'm not going to say the concept uh, because, you know, if, if, if understanding this book requires, you know, reading uh, kind of obscure philosophical tract by, you know, a disenchanted Russian intelligence officer, I, I, that's, that's something that's difficult to overcome, even though we, I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining why the concept works and what Van Vogt had in mind. Um, you know, the, the way the concept functioned in reading this book was like watching a movie when you haven't read the book, that's an adaptation. And if you don't know the book, the movie feels a little empty, even though somebody who's read the book is seeing all of the context and all the references to the text. Uh, It had that sort of feeling to me. Uh, The real strength of the novel is how fun it is to read. We've talked about this. Every chapter ends with a cliffhanger or game changer. You're always off balance, waiting to see how everything is going to play out. And man, it is a fun read. I really enjoyed the experience of just blowing through this book and just, I don't know, the way the ideas played with each other, the way Ghostane interacted with everything. It's a fun read. I, absolutely. That was the greatest strength for me as well. It was a wild ride. I was really happy to be on it. It's a it's a quick read. This is, you know, this is a book that I definitely would recommend to someone who's, you know, looking to fill some time on like an airplane ride or a car trip, you know, or something like that as just uh, as, as a fun uh, diversion with also some ideas that you can engage in. In fact, actually, I'd say that there are a lot of ideas that you could engage in here. Something we didn't do a ton of or maybe really any of on this episode is to break down this uh, utopia that exists on on Venus but like that is right there you know I definitely could envision the sort of 12 or 14 year old version of myself reading this book in uh, you know back of the car on a 12 hour drive to some relative's house for Thanksgiving and uh, setting the book down you're you know closing up the cover putting a bookmark in it staring out the window and thinking about some of Van Vogt's uh, statements about democracy uh, as it functions in a null a world and that sort of thing uh doing that for like an hour and then picking this back up and just you know reading another 70 pages uh and not even realizing that time is passing because i'm I'm so into the pace of the story itself Uh, so i think this is a really excellent book yeah i do too it's it's certainly among the most 
fun novels I've ever read. And uh, I don't know, I'll probably pick it up off the shelf someday again and dust it off and reread it because it's a lot of fun, especially rereading it with the knowledge of Kor- Korzybski is only going to open up the book more on a, on a real reread. Right. And I need to do that now that you've explained all of that to me. But uh, really where I want us to go next with Van Vogt, if we can find a way to, to do it, which is not really all that much in our control, I suppose, uh, would be to check out these, uh, these spaceships stories that uh, uh, seem to have heavily influenced the film Alien. I I would really like to check that out because I did really enjoy reading this book. So I I would love to get uh, some of Van Vogt's short fiction into our Elder Sign rotation if we can uh, find a way to manage that. Oh, that would be awesome. On that note, I think that is going to do it for this episode. So, Brandon, let me just say thanks for coming on the show, doing another extra episode here with me. It feels like we've been doing these a lot lately. I'm really glad to have done this episode and to have read this book. And I don't know, think about what people mean when they reference Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. And, and really, I, I shouldn't be thanking you, Glenn. I should be thanking our uh, Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode, who kind of, you know, got me to dust off some of my old philosophical caps and, and put them on and hopefully explain what's going on in this book. And also just to read such a, such a really, truly fun book. I really enjoyed the time I spent with this book. Yes, I'm so grateful for that as well. I don't think that there was any other way that we were going to read Van Vogt anywhere on the network. He was just not on my radar at all. I frankly kind of forgotten he existed at all, even though I have read, you know, probably a half dozen of his short stories before. So I was really glad to read this novel. And I'm really excited now that I am motivated to find some way to to get him into our Elder Sign rotation. So hopefully this will not be the last of Van Vogt here on the network. But all right. So I am Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. That includes the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and then also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there or any of our other social media accounts, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. And I will be back at the end of the month with our regularly scheduled episode on another Golden Age science fiction writer. We're going to be doing Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.